today on the Sunshine Economy, the cost and consideration of home health care for aging loved ones. It's about $50 a visit for about an hour visit. It would cost us about 30 grand a year to have them here two times a day from morning to night. I think caregiving makes strong families stronger and challenges challenging families. I'm Tom Hudson. The demand for home health care has increased even while the supply of workers has been squeezed thanks to how most care is paid for. By 2035, we're expected to have what amounts to a catastrophic shortage. The urgency of this couldn't be uh, more understated. The cost and considerations of home health care is next on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. Gary Barg worked with his mom throughout most of her 80s. She would drive to the Fort Lauderdale office of his company, Caregiver Media Group. She had a stroke in July. He found himself practicing what he had built his business around for more than a quarter of a century, caring for aging loved ones. We had to learn how to uh, do the things that we were teaching, been teaching caregivers for 26 years, how to partner with your family members, how to help your loved one through the challenges of their changing health care, how to, you know, deal with the increased financial obligations that come with it. It is a lot. And a lot of people want to stay home as they age, almost 90%, according to a survey from the Associated Press and the nonpartisan research organization NORC at the University of Chicago. NORC stands for National Opinion Research Center. Barg and his brother and sister were able to help their mom stay in her home after her stroke. Then they decided closer care in a facility was better for her, making the transition from at-home care to long-term care. Today in the program, we're talking about how most people want to age at home. What are the considerations of staying at home? How do you decide when an aging loved one needs help at home? And what kind of help? Who pays? And how much? The demand for home health care for aging loved ones is growing as the population ages and COVID-19 has been deadly in nursing homes, driving people to look for ways to age at home if they can. Meantime, the supply of home health care workers is being squeezed by limited wages and higher pay in other industries. You will hear from experts about the market conditions for home health care here in Florida and how to navigate the sometimes confusing and sometimes frustrating decisions that people face as they become caregivers for aging loved ones who are hoping to stay at home. But first, Gary Barg. He's the CEO and editor-in-chief of Caregiver Media Group, which publishes newsletters, guides, and holds conferences. We spoke with him about the central questions for people beginning their caregiving experience with a loved one. How do I keep my loved one home safe and secure, keep a transparent bubble of care around them, and not have to go to a facility before I possibly they have to go to facility? So it's a thing that we all want to do. You know, we want to keep uh, comfortable and safe and protected in our own homes. That is still the biggest issue. How do I keep my loved one uh, living at home safer, longer, and better? How does an adult family member assess the ability of an aging loved one to be able to age in place? That is the question. That's the trickiest question. I, my you know, suggestion is to try to get a professional in the middle. 
you know, try to get a geriatric care manager assessment, get an assessment from the appropriate doctor and listen to that. But you, you know, and a lot of times they know as well what they need to do to be able to live at home, what kind of assistance they need, what kind of technology they need, and maybe what kind of home care assistance they need when they never thought that they'd ever have someone coming in the house to support them as a home care aide. So walk us through some of those considerations as an adult family member, even if there's a third party involved in the assessment, is mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or uh, the great uncle uh, ready for home health care? What's the the mental and emotional ability that's necessary for an aging loved one to remain at home? Well, it's challenging because there, you know, you also have, in many cases, potentiality of having your aging loved one fight back. Not want to accept the care, for instance. Not want to accept anybody in their home and not want to deal with it. You, you know, and, and a lot of that is the conversation. One of, in one of our events in uh, New Haven uh, about 15 years ago, as usual, the question was, how do I get my loved one to accept home care? And a caregiver stood up, raised her hand. She said, you know what I did? My, my mom was a, a bank president. Now she's dealing with mid-stage Alzheimer's. So I tried to put myself in her mind frame and she was living at home with me and I was going off to work. I was scared. I said, mom, you're so busy here at work. You're so busy. I'm going to hire you an administrative assistant, not a home care aide, not a CNA, but administrative assistant. And she said, that's a great idea, honey. I'm, I'm thrilled. And the next day when she came home from work, she said, well, mom, how was the administrative assistant? And her mother said, well, it all seemed to go well. She's very smart, but maybe next time she comes, she could take me for ice cream. So the the the, the senior bought into it, and that's a big that's a big issue. Yeah, that wow, uh, that is effective. It sounds also a little subversive. <laughs> we call them loving white lies. Okay, yeah. <laughs> right. You, you, you can't be a caregiver without having a stock of loving white lies in your back pocket. Yeah. What are the considerations around housing arrangements? Sometimes that aging loved one is living alone successfully independently. Perhaps that aged loved one is living with an adult child or an adult grandchild. So how do you consider those housing arrangements when deciding when and if and then how do you bring in a home health care assistance? Well, that's that is again. That's the that's the, the primary question. How do I do this? How do I how do I uh, make sure that this is the right thing to do, and these are the right people to bring in, and this is the right solution? A lot of times, the technology, having um, the ring on the door, having uh, the, the the stove not um, uh, turn on uh, when you're not home, or uh, fall protection devices. Right now, the technology has been extraordinary for. Um, smart home and smart home protection. But when it comes to a, a, an aide or someone coming in and you've figured out possibly how much time I need, what agency I might use, then it's, a, it's about an introduction. Make sure that everybody feels respected. Your loved one feels respected and you feel that you've, you've met the, the right agency. They have the, the right background, uh, criminal background checks on their uh, CNAs. They provide 24/7 customer care in case someone doesn't come in the you know on a weekend you can call them and they can replace them we like to call partnering with home care and you start there 
you mentioned family members. How about that familial support? How about that family support, particularly if there's other siblings or other family members who may live a distance away, who perhaps are not witnessing um, the aging effects uh, quite as acutely as as you are, or for that matter, is not necessarily going to be experiencing that direct interaction with a home health care aid or providing that service. Actually, we like to call the caregiver the CEO of Caring for My Loved One, Inc. And I always say the CEO of Ford doesn't fill the tires when they come off the line. So you as the family caregiver, the primary caregiver, have to know what are the elements of your care? How much are you you doing that you need to do? You need to be the primary person to do. And how many things are, are you doing just because there's no one else to do it? And we call we, we have a, a, a plan on the on caregiver.com we call the reverse gift list. Figure out the bite-sized, easy, manageable tasks, maybe 10 of them, and 10 people who might be able to help you. Your a sister who lives far away, but is a nurse, maybe you know, you make sure she keeps seeing all the, the medical charts. Your uh, your cousin or your brother who doesn't really understand what's going on, fine. You just pay for uh, the incontinence supplies. The bill will go to you. And, and I'm thrilled that you're doing that. And then everybody's part of the solution. Money is going to direct some of this, maybe all of it. I don't know. What's the experience that you can share with us? I mean, ultimately, are these financial decisions? Um, they are. No, they, they definitely are. When my mom uh, had her stroke, my brother and I, his sister and I, took turns being with her at her, at her apartment. Uh, so we, we basically Tuesdays and Thursdays and Friday, you know, and Saturdays, I might be sleeping overnight. My brother might be sleeping overnight the other time. And my sister was there um, during the daytime when uh, it was time to have uh, home care. My sister's actually in the industry, so it was very helpful, but we knew in Dade and Broward, ostensibly the price is 19 to $20 an hour. Depends on service. Are they going to use their own car? Are they going to have to drive or they have to shop? That was the cost of the home health care aid. Uh, hourly, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, it's like 22 to $25 an hour uh, in Palm Beach County. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with different aspects of this. You say, how much of this can I afford? Who can fill in? You know, maybe the grandchild can come in for a while you're building this employment chart of everybody being able to do what they can do to the ability that they, that they have to do it regarding timing. But, you know, that's basically when you talk about the financial implications of having in-home uh, aid, that's basically what that is. Basically, the more, you know, up front. Uh, the better you are to serve your loved one and yourself. The other thing I would say is when it comes to family caregiving is job one is to care for yourself because you really do need to understand the additional stressors that caregiving uh, puts on you and understand how to get some respite, get the, the support you need and pay attention to your own health care. That's Gary Barg, CEO and editor-in-chief of Caregiver Media Group based in Fort Lauderdale.
You're listening to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Still to come, insurance and home health care for an aging loved one. A lot of children, when they start sorting through their parents' mail and stuff, realize that their parents have a policy or had a policy. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. We're talking about the costs and considerations of home health care for aging loved ones on today's program. Hi, I'm Heather Smothers, and I live in Key West, Florida, and I take care of my elderly grandfather. He's 86 years old. Um, there's um, me, my husband, my grandfather, and then also my mother-in-law and my daughter, who's turning two, so... We just make it in a big family event. His house is divided into two apartments. So we have the upstairs and he has the downstairs. He was born in Key West. He's about a fifth generation comp is what we call them. He was a teacher. He taught in Marathon for about seven years. And then he taught in Key West for the remainder until about the early 90s. He's into butterflies and botany, and he loves planting. His yard looks like a jungle. <laughs> he still gets out there and plants trees, and um, he likes to volunteer and do tours at the garden club. Um, he's very knowledgeable. He likes to tease. He's he's very um, he's very humorous. <laughs> Heather Smothers' grandfather now pays for his home health care. He had insurance for it, but it ran out. Originally, he had a plan with insurance for home health that covered a certain amount, and we eventually used it all. That's why we tried not to use them so often, because we wanted that plan to last a little bit longer. But it did run out, and I mean, if we were to have them in, it's about $50 a visit for about an hour visit. It would cost us about thirty grand a year to have them here two times a day from morning to night. So it's a little bit pricey <laughs> to have that yeah. service. But in the long run, I feel like it's worth it. And he's lucky enough to have the finances available to afford that. Where I know like a lot of people aren't available to afford that. Because that's, that's quite a bit of chunk of money. <laughs> Steve Dunn knows all about insurance and elder care. 17 years ago, his father needed care and had insurance, but the insurance company did not want to pay for it. My sister and I tried to make a claim for my father, and the claim was denied. So I was forced to sue the insurance company. And when I went through the whole process, including the revelation of how far advanced my father's dementia was without me fully understanding it, Plus, the struggle against the insurance company drove me to change my practice. Dunn now focuses his law career almost exclusively on elder care insurance, a professional decision that came from his personal experience caring for his father. You know, it came from the best generation. Yes, he was a World War II veteran, and so were his two brothers. Uh, my father came back um, from World War II. He used the GI Bill to put himself through law school. And uh, this is a family that grew up very poor. In fact, my father was the youngest of eight. There were two sets of twins in his family. He was the only one of his uh, siblings to go to college. And, um, and he, uh, he did it. He pulled himself out of poverty and helped pull the rest of his family out of poverty. He was an amazing, 
amazing person. And I'm in long-term care and all the things that I'm doing now because of my father. And I give him all the credit. Dunn said he won that case against his father's home health care insurance company. We spoke with him over Zoom. Steve, how common is insurance for home health care? It's not the most common thing, but there are probably about tens of thousands of policies in force right now. And the long-term care insurance industry is paying out approximately 12 to $15 billion in long-term care benefits, which would include home care. So the question then on the insurance side would be, what do they collect in premiums if they're paying that out in covered costs? Premiums have actually soared over the last several years because the claim experience is much greater than what the uh, insurance companies anticipated when they began to underwrite the policies. So premiums are surging right now. Yeah, it's a big problem for a lot of people. Tough to get the coverage if you don't already have it? It is tough to get it now because the underwriting uh, requirements are much more stringent than they were before. Give us an example of that. People are living longer than the insurance companies anticipated. I think they sort of looked at the the product as uh, akin to somebody entering a nursing home. And, you know, years ago, somebody entered a nursing home, they had approximately a six-month life expectancy. Well, people are living much, much longer, and the claims are lasting much, much longer. So that's one factor. Another factor is that uh, the insurance companies always assume a certain lapse rate, which is the rate of people letting their policies go after paying premiums for a number of years. And they haven't experienced a lapse rate that they anticipated. So a lot more people are hanging onto their policies. That in combination with people living longer, they're just paying out a lot more than they ever thought they were going to have to. And so many more people interested in living at home, aging at home, as the phrase goes. So if one does have home health care insurance, how does that insurance get spent on home health care? Typically, the way the policies are set up, they require the insured to go through a licensed home health agency or in Florida, a nurse registry. They activate their policy by getting assessed by a nurse, usually from the agency. A plan of care is created. Then the plan of care is implemented. And that plan of care is then sent to the insurance company with a respectful demand that they commence making the payments. And in the case that we heard about earlier, what happens when that insurance gets spent? Is there a maximum amount? that an insurer will cover over the course of a home health care experience? So policies do vary in duration. Some are of unlimited duration. They're called lifetime benefit policies. And then you have uh, policies that may have a two-year duration, a three-year duration, or some policies are set up like a bucket of money. So you buy the policy, you have a certain amount of money in the policy to spend. And once the money's spent out, Essentially, the policy is finished. And then what options do people have once that insurance is gone? Well, it depends. Uh, some people might be veterans. They may be able to tap into some VA uh, benefits for home care. Depending on how much money people have, they may qualify for Medicaid benefits. There's a program in Florida called the Waiver Program, and uh, Medicaid will pay a certain amount of money for those who are qualified towards home care. 
And that's an income level or an asset-based qualification? Correct. Yes, it is. Okay. What qualifies as a covered cost when it comes to home health care? What kind of considerations need to be thought about when setting up that health care plan to stay at home? There are two ways, essentially, to trigger a benefit under a long-term care policy. One is functional, which requires a showing of a need for assistance with two more of your activities of daily living. And those activities of daily living are typically bathing, dressing, feeding, continence, and transferring. Transferring means moving from a bed to a chair, for instance? Correct. From bed to a chair, in and out of a chair, in and out of a couch, in and out of a car, up and down. That's transferring. In and out of a shower, up and down from the toilet. Those, those would be transferring activities. So if an individual demonstrates the need for at least two of those ADLs, activities of daily living, then they would qualify functionally under their policy. Now, a lot of policies will allow for what is called standby assistance versus hands-on assistance. And standby assistance means essentially having somebody there within arm's length to observe the individual while the individual is carrying out their activities of daily living to make sure that they're carrying them out safely. So standby is a low bar to qualify for benefits under a long-term care policy. So you have to take a good look at the policy to understand that because uh, if you don't have a policy like that and the plan of care is calling for standby assistance, the insured may be facing a denial. So the second way to trigger a benefit under a policy is the cognitive impairment trigger. And the cognitive impairment trigger is a little bit harder to perfect because the cognitive impairment has to be severe enough such that a person needs constant supervision to protect themselves from harm to themselves or others. So there are two distinct ways to trigger benefits under a policy. And what should folks, what should adult children, for instance, or grandchildren of aging loved ones or just adult relatives look for in an insurance policy if their aging loved one has one or if they're looking for one prior to thinking they're going to need home health care? Well, looking for one is definitely important. People who are already into their 70s and 80s may have some difficulties even attaining a, a policy. But for sure, a lot of children, when they start sorting through their parents' mail and stuff, realize that their parents have a policy or had a policy. So first, the children have to know whether one exists. And if one does exist, they have to look at it very carefully or have someone look at it for them to make sure they understand exactly what's in it so that they can plan care accordingly. It's very important. And what to avoid. And what to avoid. Exactly. What are some of those red flags? A huge red flag is when the seniors begin to, uh, to experience cognitive impairments. They forget to pay their bills. They forget to pay their insurance premiums and their policies lapse. And they're lapsing at a time when they're probably benefit eligible. And a lot of times children who live far away aren't perceiving the decline to the extent that their parents are declining. And they only find out that that the policies lapsed when they finally got to go through their mail. You know, uh, now there are ways to resurrect policies that have lapsed due to, it's called an unintentional lapse of the policy. 
but you don't ever want to be in that situation um, for sure. Another thing is that, you know, children have to really be aware and understand the care setting that they're, or the setting that their parents are in, their environment, and observe them very carefully because, you know, you don't want to wait for that fall to happen. You want to protect your parent from the fall. So if you think that you're, you know, if someone out there thinks that their parents are unsteady, that's the time to act. You don't wait until somebody's, you know, wasted before you try to activate a policy. The idea around the policy is to keep people safe and as independent as possible for as long as possible. So early uh, activation of a policy, I believe, is critical to the longevity of the individual. Speaking with lawyer Steve Dunn, he's an elder care attorney specializing in long-term insurance claims. He's based in Miami. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Still to come on this program, why stronger demand for home health care services has not led to more supply of workers. Unlike other sectors, the long-term care sector, the regular sort of rules around supply and demand and the relationship to wages don't necessarily apply. I'm Tom Hudson. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. Almost 2.5 million people work in the home health care industry nationwide. The industry has seen an enormous jump in workers over the past decade as the American population ages. Home health care employees are overwhelmingly female. About half are black or Hispanic, and over half are older than 45 years old themselves. This is according to data from the nonprofit Paraprofessional Healthcare Institute, better known as PHI. Since 2013, the number of people working as home health care and personal care aides in Florida had more than doubled by 2019. The pandemic, though, saw thousands of people leave the industry, and wages have been stagnant all along thanks to how most home health care is paid for through Medicaid and Medicare. Stephen McCall is the data and policy analyst at PHI. Describe the state of the home health care job market here in Florida. Here in Florida, like the rest of the country, we're really facing a caregiving crisis. And there are a few driving factors behind the crisis. First, there's explosive demand for home care workers. Over the past decade alone, this workforce added 27,000 new jobs, or 60% growth. Uh, That's driven primarily by a growing population of older adults, as well as policy and programmatic changes that make home care services more available to people living in the community. But wages just haven't caught up with that demand. Uh, Home care workers in Florida in 2020 were making $11.61 an hour, compared to $11.39 10 years ago. So while demand has grown by 60%, their wages have only increased by 2%. And as a result, turnover is high, vacancies are widespread, and older adults and people with disabilities are really struggling to find the services they need. What explains that wage stagnation given the sharp increase in demand for those workers? Is it the supply of workers? There's so many more workers now willing to do the work that has helped keep wages flat, essentially? Unlike other sectors, the long-term care sector, the regular sort of 
rules around supply and demand and the relationship to wages don't necessarily apply. I think everyone in the long-term care field agrees that workers deserve more. The problem is, is that this industry is heavily reliant on the state's Medicaid program for financing. There are a number of reasons for that, but historically, these Medicaid programs have underinvested in long-term care and in worker wages in turn. So while a place like McDonald's can adjust prices or dip into profits to increase their wages in a tight labor market, uh, home care providers are having to go to the legislature every year fighting tooth and nail just to get sort of a foundational level of investment. And the level of investment that's really needed is lacking here in Florida and across the country. There's some level of private payers when it comes to home health care. There's a small level of insured payers when it comes to home health care. But the majority of the money comes through the federal and state governments, correct? Yes, that's correct. About two-thirds of home care revenue comes from Medicaid, and that varies from provider to provider. The reason for that is uh, care is extremely expensive. The median cost of home care here in Florida is $50,000 a year. For many folks, they start out by paying for care out of pocket, uh, but that quickly depletes their resources and impoverishes them. So that's how Medicaid has taken on this outsized role. It's sort of left to pick up the pieces of a broken safety net uh, that isn't providing an adequate level of support to folks. And on long-term care insurance, while some folks have that as an option to pay for care, uh, that industry is shrinking. The premiums are extremely high for folks who have those plans. Their premiums are going up year after year, and they're having to make hard decisions about whether those plans are even affordable for them. Uh, so for all of those reasons, Medicaid has really taken on the primary role as a payer for home care in Florida and across the country. And Medicaid sets certain rates for those direct care workers, those home health care workers. In Florida, the Medicaid fee for a home health care aid, $17.46 an hour. A personal care services aid for home health care, capped at $15 an hour. What do you think the market would bear? I think that when we're thinking about developing an adequate rate, the workforce is a primary concern. When we're talking about $17, $15 an hour to agencies, that leaves very little for their overhead expenses and administrative costs and really hinders their ability to invest in this workforce. I think if we're going to invest in workers at an adequate level, we need to start by thinking about uh, what is a, a living wage for these workers, a wage that they can actually afford to live on, uh, and also what is a competitive wage in a tight labor market. Since uh, now in this period of economic recovery following the COVID-induced uh, recession, we're seeing employers across sectors uh, raising their wages at dramatic rates, and home care employers have really been left behind. Uh, you know, we see places like, you know, Target and McDonald's raising wages to $15 an hour or higher. Home care workers are still earning uh, less than $12. So the math just doesn't add up in uh, recruiting workers. And then for home health care consumers, those aging loved ones who need that care, uh, adult 
uh, relatives who may be finding ways to pay for that care, if that average is $50,000 a year now for the home health care care that's necessary for the aging population here in Florida, for instance, where would that number go? And who pays for that difference? Right. I think even starting at $50,000 a year, where we are currently, that speaks to just the immense challenges that families are facing in accessing care. So another key consideration here is to think beyond Medicaid. How can we structure a social safety net that's meeting people's needs uh, when they have them, not after they've reached poverty? Uh, One example of how states have addressed this comes from Washington State, where they've established a new universal long-term care trust fund that allows people to access, pay into this fund over their lifetimes, and then take money out when they need it. Uh, to help them address their immediate care needs before they reach poverty and qualify for Medicaid. Let me also ask about training and the regulatory environment here in Florida for the home health care industry. Florida does not require uh, home health care aid to be licensed by the state, but does require about 75 hours of training. How could a license requirement or training requirement as the care gets more complex, how could that impact the cost and the labor supply? I think we absolutely need to attend to the training needs of of workers. First and foremost, they need to feel comfortable and confident in their skills when they're going into the field. Over the past few decades, we've made a really intentional effort as a country to make home and community-based services more available to folks who might have usually or in the past uh, received care in nursing homes. So as a result, people with more severe disability, higher level care needs, and more chronic conditions are living at home and receiving services from home care workers. We need to start by thinking about the types of skills and knowledge they need to assist people with those specific disabilities and conditions. But we also need to make sure that we're training workers on relationship building skills that are also trainable, uh, making sure that they can manage conflicts in the home, both with the consumer and their family members, because oftentimes they're working independently in the field and managing those conflicts on their own. So I think the investment in training on the front end pays off dividends down the line, both in terms of the quality of care that workers are providing can save money on on the acute care side, but also in terms of turnover cost. Um, Many workers are leaving the field because they're receiving an inadequate level of training and then entering a home where uh, family members are, are having conflict with them. The consumer has a severe case of dementia that they you know, they don't feel prepared to care for them. And so they leave and go to a big box retailer where their stress levels are lower. So there is a cost involved in investing in training, uh, but it's a cost that pays off in the long run. How has the pandemic and vaccine requirements for healthcare workers and some home healthcare workers impacted supply and demand? The pandemic has definitely had an impact on recruitment and retention. Uh, According to a recent study that we did, uh, around 170,000 direct care workers across the country left their jobs and didn't come back. Basically, what we saw is workers left their jobs during the pandemic, either because they were laid off or because they had childcare responsibilities at home, and no one filled their place. So at a time when demand is skyrocketing, uh, the long-term care field took a step 
backward. And we are seeing that with vaccine mandates rolling out, that some workers are leaving their positions, but still the vaccine is our last best tool to prevent uh, the spread of COVID among workers and consumers alike. It's a really challenging situation that we're in, where on one hand, we're choosing between workers leaving the field because they're vaccine hesitant, or potentially contracting the virus and you know, having a detrimental impact on themselves and their families, as well as the people they're caring for. That's Stephen McCall with PHI, a nonprofit group focusing on direct care workers, nursing home and home health care workers. As our program continues, still to come, the tough environment for caregivers looking for home health care for aging loved ones here in Florida. By 2035, we're expected to have what amounts to a catastrophic shortage of RNs. I think we're going to be short by about 60,000 uh, nurses at that point. The urgency of this couldn't be uh, more understated. back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening this week. Today, we're talking about the costs and considerations of home health care for aging loved ones. Most people want to stay in their homes or the home of a family member as they get older and need more attention. A shrinking workforce of home health care workers, sometimes difficult work with stagnant wages and the threat of the pandemic, though, is making it harder to find that care in Florida. Kyle Simon is the Director of Government Affairs for the Home Care Association of Florida, which represents about a third of licensed home health care businesses in the state. Kyle, what are the cost drivers of home health care in Florida? Well, the cost drivers are certainly uh, the fact that we have a workforce shortage issue that contributes to uh, overall access. That uh, certainly is one aspect of it. In particular, one of the big problems that we're dealing with uh, as an industry is the Medicaid reimbursement rate. So the cost drivers are certainly just being squeezed on reimbursement side. And then if you're looking at the private pay side where consumers are seeing the increase in costs is simply because of the fact that uh, the availability uh, and the ability for agencies to recruit and retain workers especially during COVID and all a variety of other factors that contribute into it, uh, that certainly is something that uh, all factors into the cost drivers for uh, our sector. What about on the demand side, the demand for home health care services, the demand in Florida for direct care services? Uh, those drivers go to the labor cost issue, certainly. But what about just from the consumer side? The consumer side, uh, certainly COVID has uh, really shine the light on the the value proposition of the home care sector. As we all recall, at the beginning of the pandemic, certainly there was concerns around uh, facility-level care, so those nursing homes and ALFs uh, where COVID was spreading uh, rapidly, and unfortunately, patients and families all looked at home health as a safer um, and also more uh, economical, uh, cost-effective way to still get high-quality care. Certainly, COVID has underscored uh, the need and the uh, want on the consumer side to age in place and uh, reside in the home. Talk a little more about how the pandemic has affected the demand. Uh, more than 50,000 Floridians were waiting for home health care through the state's Medicaid program even before the pandemic. Here in Florida, I think we have about 300,000 Floridians, uh, seniors who get Medicare home health services. On the private side, uh, you can pay out of pocket or pay through private insurance uh, to get that. But uh, certainly the, there are uh, scores of news articles and reports and data that has come out showing the uh, severe uptick in utilization uh, throughout the 20 months, I guess we're at now, or however many months it's been of the pandemic. 
family members wanting their loved ones to uh, be safe and not be uh, exposed to other patients or workers in a facility uh, or even go into a hospital if they can prevent it. They've certainly utilized home care uh, as needed, whether it's skilled care, nursing or therapy, or something as simple as assistance with activities of daily living, you know, toileting, dressing, uh, meal prep, those kinds of things uh, to be able to allow, uh, you know, grandma or grandpa to stay in the home and uh, not risk exposure uh, and, you know, unfortunately, worst case scenario, death. All of this creates a very challenging environment for adult children or adult relatives of aging loved ones as they enter into the potential of becoming a client in the home health care services market. How do you even begin navigating this kind of web of uh, mismatch of supply and demand, the mismatch in labor, the cost structure? You know, what's a consumer to make of this? For families, the challenge, of course, is how do you, uh, you know, provide the, the best care and keep your loved ones close and not in a facility if they, if they don't have to be. When it comes to finding an agency who can staff your case, if, if it's a Medicare or Medicaid, Medicare is a little bit better off getting access to a Medicare, Medicare services in the home. Uh, it's better off than Medicaid, certainly. Uh, we're hearing stories where home health agencies are not able to, whenever they get a plan of care or a an order from a physician to start home health services through the Medicaid program, uh, they're having to do all they can to be able to schedule, whether it's a CNA or a home health aide or even a nurse in some cases, to be able to provide the care at the level they need and at the frequency the patient needs. So in those cases, sometimes, uh, unfortunately, it could lead to having to go into ALF. It could lead to an unnecessary hospitalization. Um, There are several uh, concerns about that. And also we've seen with family members actually having to leave the workforce on their own in order to stay home and care for their loved ones. Uh, So it is certainly challenging uh, if you don't have long-term care insurance or if you're not Medicare eligible. Those are all very uh, big stressors and certainly something that consumers um, validly are are, uh, upset about uh, considering the whole state of the situation. What's the advice to those family members about how to approach the conversations with aging loved ones, how to approach decisions, what's going to drive that decision? Is it purely financial? It's got to be access at this point, too, the ability to actually secure the services, isn't it? Absolutely. Talking to a loved one about it, it certainly depends on what type of care the the person might need. If they need uh, skilled, round-the-clock care, um, it's very unlikely that they're going to be able to uh, get that through the Medicaid program. If they're on Medicaid, Medicare does not provide uh, that type of care, that care throughout the entire day. Um, So private pay or private insurance or long-term care insurance is something you have to look at for that. Um, But if it's simply something to, you know, ensure that help around the house to be able to live there and not have to go into a facility, grocery shopping, uh, running errands, those types of things. Uh, The Medicaid program can assist with that. Uh, Private insurance also, and and, uh, to an extent, some of the Medicare Advantage plans are just now starting to look at that side of services that they can provide. And typically for that personal care, that assistance with activities of daily living, that kind of care, uh, you can find someone who can come in and do that and not have to have someone sleeping over around the clock. I mean, there are nurses and direct care workers like CNAs and home health aides who, who will sleep overnight at someone's home um, in order to you know, make sure that they have access to care. You're absolutely right on the other side of it is just because uh, you know you may have access to you know, the benefit, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid or through your insurance, it's simply the problem on the other side for the healthcare sector 
is the shortage of workers going into the field and the fact that by 2035, we're expected to have uh, what amounts to a catastrophic shortage of RNs. I think we're going to be short by about 60,000 nurses at that point. So we're looking at the 2022 Florida legislative session uh, to find long-term solutions to the workforce shortage crisis. And that includes uh, bolstering the Medicaid home and community-based care program, uh, also looking into things like telehealth and reimbursing for telehealth. That They've made some strides, lawmakers uh, in both Washington and Tallahassee have made strides to expand access to that service, uh, which could help ameliorate some of those uh, shortage issues. So that's what we're looking at long term to be able to address this. But it's the urgency of this couldn't be uh, more understated. Speaking with Kyle Simon with the Home Care Association of Florida, the trade group for the home health care industry in the state. Still to come, inflation continues heating up as infections have dropped off. How could those two forces impact the local job market? The first time in 30 plus years, we will be concerned with inflation. This could result in people who are more reluctant to enter the job market to be considering doing that again. I'm Tom Hudson. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. An economic side effect of the pandemic has been inflation, the general increase in prices. In October, consumer prices jumped by their highest rate since 1990. Supply chain problems, limited inventories of some goods, COVID stimulus checks, and other financial assistance have all contributed to inflation heating up. Now, sure, oil and food prices have increased, but so have the prices for cars, shoes, and furniture. And higher inflation may bring people who left the job market back. This could result with people who are more reluctant to enter the job market to be considering doing that again. This is Dr. Zinzi Bailey, a social epidemiologist at the University of Miami. Inflationary pressures make everyday goods more expensive, draining away savings that people may have been able to put aside. Savings is just one theory as to why some people have not returned to the job market. The labor force here in South Florida still is smaller than it was before the pandemic, even as tens of thousands of jobs have returned. Now, that has helped spur companies to raise wages to attract workers. But with October's inflation increase, even some of those pay hikes are no longer keeping pace. People facing professions, they're getting pay increases that may not keep up with inflation. This is Howard Frank with FIU's Metropolitan Center. Perhaps the first time in 30 plus years, we will be concerned with inflation. The higher prices also make going to work more expensive. Just getting to and from work is more costly if you drive. A lot of the people who um, we see who have dropped out of the workforce or are essentially holding out with inflation, particularly around gas prices and those sorts of things, it might be an issue for them going back to the workforce. Gas prices were up almost 7% between August and October, according to government data here in South Florida. That's a cost that comes right out of the pocket of consumers. And overall, consumer inflation in South Florida was 5.7% in October compared to a year earlier. That's slightly lower than the national inflation rate. Florida also is doing slightly better than most of the rest of the country concerning the spread of the virus. There are only two places in the nation where the Centers for Disease Control says the transmission of the germ has fallen to a moderate level, Puerto Rico and Florida. 
I'm not sure that we're going to be in a better place than we are right now, right? <laughs> but we have to recognize how we got there. We've gotten here because many people died. Many people were infected in August and September. We went through a huge wave. Now, with northern states experiencing waves and colder temperatures and U.S. borders back open to some international travelers, Bailey remains cautious about the months ahead. Yes, we have limited community transmission. We can, you know, kind of take a deep breath. But we have to make sure that we keep up to date. This is not over. And with the current conditions in the job market, global trade constraints and higher oil prices, neither may be inflation. You can get a podcast of this program and all of our programs. Search Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. Please be sure to hit subscribe when you're there. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.